0: Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around south-central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Today on Addressing Alaskans, a celebration of Black History Month. Good afternoon, I'm Ammon Swenson. Coming up in the hour, we have the Alaska Black Caucus's virtual Black History Month celebration, and we'll learn about black history in Hollywood. But first, this short profile. He was one of the greatest inventors of the 20th century, Garrett Augustus
1: Morgan Sr. This is Heroes in Black History. On July 24, 1916, an explosion occurred in a tunnel 200 feet under Lake Erie. 32 Cleveland water workmen were trapped inside. Rescue parties entered the tunnel but never came out. Wearing only pajama bottoms, Garrett Augustus Morgan Sr. came to the rescue, utilizing his recently patented safety helmet. The device was worn by placing the canvas hood over the head, merging in a single tube a double tube, a sponge soaked in water used at the open end to filter out smoke and cool incoming air. Morgan's brother, along with volunteers, entered the tunnel and soon began pulling workers and rescuers to safety. Morgan was responsible for other great inventions. He developed a liquid that gave sewing machine needles a high polish, preventing the needle from scorching fabric as it sewed. In 1905, Morgan accidentally discovered the same liquid could be used to straighten hair. He then launched the G.A. Morgan Hair Refining Company to market this product, as well as his other hair care inventions. In 1922, Morgan patented perhaps his greatest invention, a traffic signal with safety features many signals of the time did not have. In addition to stop and go indicators, Morgans included an all-stop signal used to clear the intersection, allowing pedestrians to cross or to stop cross traffic before signaling a different direction to proceed. A half mast warning position indicated general caution at times when the device operator was not present. And Morgan's device featured lights and warning bells powered by a battery or a connection to a main power source. Garrett Augustus Morgan Sr. died in 1963 at the age of 86, one of the greatest inventors of the 20th century,
0: a true hero of black history. Now let's hear a portion of the Alaska Black Caucus's virtual Black History Month celebration. This was recorded via Facebook Live on February 7th.
2: Hello. I'm glad you stopped by to help us celebrate... Black History Month. Black History Month is when we celebrate our history, our culture, and all the good things we contributed to our community, our country, and the world. May we celebrate our history not only
3: in February, but every day. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Premier. Good evening. And thank you, Premier Shine, who's eight and a half years old, fourth grader at Russian Jack Elementary School for that welcome. You nailed it. I am Celeste Hodgrodin, the president and CEO of the Alaska Black Caucus. Our organization advocates for the rights of black people in the areas of health, education, economics, and justice. Thank you for joining us today in celebration of Black History Month. So now sit back and relax and enjoy tonight's Black History Month program planned especially for you. Please welcome Reverend Edwina Brown, Executive Administrator of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. Reverend Brown.
4: Let us pray. God, on this day, as we gather in your presence, we rejoice in your great faithfulness, consistently displayed through our great struggles and great strides. We gather to celebrate, Lord, not because our lives are without trouble and weakness. Well, we do so because we know that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So we come together this day with our heads bowed and our hearts lifted. We come bringing our hope, yet absent of the evidence of its fulfillment, but trusting in your promises. While our people continue to be targets of the oppressor, and our faces lay kissing the mat, it is in that moment we have the audacity to proclaim victory in your name. You never fail and you never disappoint. So we must acknowledge that our victory is not based on our present state, but solely on your presence. The celebration reminds us that we have persevered through horrendous adversity and triumph, and that we have not done so alone. And while this celebration of our history reminds us of the work our forebears accomplished, we are also made aware of what they left undone. We celebrate our history today to remind us that empowered by you as they were, we can continue their work and likewise pass down legacies of strength, perseverance, faith, and victory to future generations. Have your God-like way in our lives and in this celebration. May the name of the Lord be forever praised. In Jesus we pray. Amen.
3: Amen. Thank you, Reverend Brown. And next we will have Taylor Mitchell of New Day Christian Center who will present our land acknowledgement.
5: Today, we recognize the indigenous peoples of Alaska on whose lands we live and work. For those here in Anchorage and surrounding areas, we recognize the Dena'ina peoples who have and will always take care of this place so many of us now call home. We acknowledge the Alaska Native people's lands that we carry out our important work on and encourage each of us to do
3: the same. Please welcome our Senator, Senator LV
6: Gray-Jackson. Thank you, Celeste. And um, good evening, everyone. It's great to see you all here. During my first session as an Alaska State Senator, one of my goals was to permanently establish February as Black History Month and November as Alaska Native History Month. With the help from Representative Story and Zakowski, we were successful with both bills passing by both the Senate and the House and almost unanimously. In 2019, SB40 recognized the month of February as Black History Month in Alaska. What an honor it is to have this recognition permanently in state statutes. We celebrate this month by remembering the achievements and inventions of African-Americans who have made a difference in US history. I encourage everyone to use this month as an opportunity to educate yourselves and others about the vast history of the many contributions offered by our heritage through Inventions and More.
3: Thank you, Senator L.B. Gray-Jackson. And next, we will hear from our new council member from Wasilla, Mr. Simon Brown.
7: Thank you, Celeste. And thank everyone for being on this program tonight. I come to you from Wasilla in the Matsu Valley, the fastest growing community in Alaska but I ask each one of you, as you sit here and listen, to make a commitment this entire month that you will share with someone else around you in Alaska about the accomplishment that that Black Alaskans have made and the things that Black Alaskans are doing in the political, social, religion, and economic field. We have several people making great contributions every day to this state. Let's share that with someone and then make a commitment that you will Demonstrate to someone who have doubts about what blacks are doing worldwide, and show them a positive aspect. Tell them a positive fact about history, things that we have done to contribute to this nation, to make this nation what it is. Without blacks doing what we have done, the nation would not be what it is today.
3: Thank you. Okay, so put your hands together for 13-year-old Daviera Shine from Clark Middle School, who will be sharing a poem entitled, Status.
2: Status by Vivian Allen. I boarded a train, kissed all goodbye, and in my heart was a sympathetic sigh. For I would go and live in a city where people and hearts and buildings were bigger, while they remained to work and toil in a town whose thriving was of soil. For long it worked. I knew no distress. I even decided to write them less. What need that I had for old folk degenerate whose living and thinking was way out of date. Then, one quiet day I found all of me, confusion abound, with problems as high as Jack's beanstalk, and no one with whom to talk. My dilemma was all my own, no counselling dad, no kindness shown. And for once I knew my real status, cockroach in a park theater. Now my heart knows no delight, like a trip back to the old home's sight. And not for money would I scoff at a screen door hanging off. So they got no tall skyscrapers, clowns in nightclubs, cutting capers, it's home. The folk there are warm, and most important, I belong. Thank you very much for
3: that. Thank you. Great job. Let's go to Kayla Green from the NAACP. Kayla. Hello,
8: thanks for inviting me, Celeste, to be here. For the NAACP, We just wanna say that the importance of acknowledging Black History Month is paramount for our current status in the world today. It's very easy for people to forget the struggles that we have overcome to get to this point and to also understand what we are still fighting for. In our society, we have intentionally been left out of the narrative of American history. And it is important for us to recognize our accomplishments of our ancestors to move forward in our society. We stand on the shoulders and on the backs of great individuals who have given their lives everything for us to be here today for us to be educated, for us to have a voice, for us to be independent and free. We must always remember what our ancestors have done, and we must always remember our past so that we can build upon our future. Our future generations, my nieces, my nephews, our children, they look to us, they want a better world we can help them have a better world, but we must continue to fight. We must continue to move forward and we must teach them the past so they never take for granted all the things that have been done, all the things that our families have done to help them, to support them, to make them who they are today. So in conclusion, Black History Month, it's not only paramount for us and our children and for others around us, but we have to celebrate our accomplishments. We have to speak up in order to make lasting change in our society. And this is not something that's just a month. This is not something that we should just recognize today. This is a celebration of us every single day for the rest of our lives.
3: Thank you. Thank you to our first vice president of the NAACP. She um, just had a throat procedure and so I appreciate her sharing with us today. And so we will go back up to Mr. Chair of the Assembly, Felix Rivera. Felix.
9: Thank you so much, Celeste, for inviting me to read uh, a resolution of the Anchorage Municipal Assembly recognizing and celebrating February 2021 as Black History Month. Whereas Black History Month was established in 1926 by Carter G. Woodson to draw attention to the experiences and successes of Black people in the United States. And whereas Dr. Woodson originally chose the second week of February for Negro History Week because it marks the birthdays of three great Americans, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Abraham Lincoln. And the founding of the national association for the advancement of colored people on february 12 1909 and whereas the 2021 black history month theme is the black family representation identity and diversity the black family has been a topic of study in many disciplines history literature and visual arts and film studies sociology anthropology and social policy and whereas its representation, identity, and diversity of the Black family have been referenced, stereotyped, and vilified from the period of enslavement to our own time. The Black family offers a rich tapestry of images for exploring the African-American past and present. And whereas it is essential that we acknowledge and are aware of the wide diversity of Black organizations that provide an array of perspectives and contributions to the municipality, And that the identity of the Black community is as diverse as each person. And whereas during Black History Month, community celebrations will focus on the achievements, history, wellness, and the inclusiveness of the wide diversity of the Black community. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the Anchorage Assembly that February 2021 shall be recognized and celebrated in the municipality of Anchorage as Black History Month. Thank you.
3: And with that, I'd like to introduce George Martinez, who is the director of leadership and youth programs with the Humanities Forum.
10: Good evening, Celeste. Thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight, and uh, thank you, ABC, for the opportunity to lift my voice in the spirit of John Lewis, whose philosophy was simple. If you see something that's not right, that's not fair, that's not just, say something, do something, get into trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. These words remind us that the power is in our hands, that we are the ones we've been waiting for, that we are the change we want to see. Legacy is a gift, an inheritance, a thing that is passed down from our predecessors. The living legacy of John Lewis and those freedom fighters whose shoulders we stand on is to make sure that we pass on that inheritance to the next generations behind us. He called for us to move from celebration, which is the gathering, the tribute, the honoring to the activation, which is the operationalizing of that energy of the movement into public policy and into that powerful four letter word, vote. I thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight to remind us that we are living the legacy, that we are tasked with the purpose of of making sure we are causing good trouble, but with a purpose of building that beloved community. That's going to move our city forward. That's going to move our state forward. And that is moving our nation forward. Thank you, Celeste. Thank you, ABC.
3: Thank you, Mr. Martinez. This is the best kept secret. She's about to speak in just a few moments. Her name is Taylor Mitchell. And so Taylor, I just want you to share a little bit about you and then tell us what Black history means to you.
5: Good evening, everybody. I'm really excited to be here. Like Celeste said, my name is Taylor Mitchell. I'm 28 years old. I've lived in Anchorage um, most of my life. Um, I am a Bartlett graduate. I have a bachelor's and master's degree, and I'm planning to attend law school in 2022 um, to help um, people of color and to help advance uh, making sure that our community is taken care of. I share this fact that in the United States, only 5% of lawyers are Black, and of that 5%, only 2% are women. So we have a lot of work to do, uh, like in many areas within the Black community. Um, And so I was asked to share what Black history means to me, and I wrote a short poem, so I wanna read that with you to express, really, what Black history means to
11: me. Black history means to me that I can do better than the people before me. I can fight for the causes the pioneers of our people did. Black history means I won't forget all those who came before me. Black history means calling attention to systemic racism and dismantling ideologies. Black history means knowing the crucial inventions and patents of my people. Black history is innovative. Black history means making sure that my generation and those after me feel pride in our people. Black history means that with the smallest chance of success and resources, I can and will succeed. Black history is being book smart. Black history is being street smart. Black history is being creative. Black history is not just existing to be. Black history is adversity. Black history means rising above, flying and soaring to new heights. Black history means busting down the doors, crashing the windows of opportunity, and shattering glass ceilings. Black history is hard. Black history is painful. Black history means knowledge, power, love, hope, faith, and grace. Black history is community. Black history means being proud of who you are, where you come from, and who you can be. Black history is taking the blows, but getting back up. Black history means taking up space, bringing your own table and seat. Black history is humanity. Black history means fighting for respect, justice, and equality. Black history is not taking no for an answer. Black history is iron sharpening iron. Black history is encouraging the next generation to be nurses, doctors, lawyers, CEOs, and rising through the ranks. Black history means appreciating Black culture and Black people and realizing that one cannot be separated from the other. Black history is lending a helping hand. Black history is believing that we can all win. Black history is loving the skin I'm in, my features, and seeing the beauty in my hair. Black history is walking with my head held high. Black history is being all the things people said I'd never amount to be. Black history is good trouble, necessary trouble. This is Black history. This is what Black history means to me.
3: Mm. Wow. And and I know she said she's from Bartlett High School, but but how did you? What, what did you graduate with? That what was that?
11: I uh, was the valedictorian. I had a four actually over 4.0. Um, So. I am, uh, you know, people often say about Bartlett and some of the other schools, especially uh, in the places where we have our poor communities, that, you know, the kids aren't creative or they're not smart or, you know, they're going to grow up to really not amount to much. Um, And I am proof that, you know, it it doesn't matter where you go to school or where you come from. The experience is what you make it. And if you have teachers and staff and people behind you, your community um, that can encourage you and lift you up, you know, you can really soar to whatever height, uh, you want to go to, and the people who tell you, you can't be this, or you can't be that, or, you know, how, how could, how could this come out of this area, you know, uh, you can prove them wrong, and show them that Black people are smart, Black people are creative, Black people are awesome.
3: I have to stand up on that one.
11: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, it's, it's, incredible you know really what the the black community what we can be um and we really have to awaken people um to put aside the connotations that are associated with black people and really show that you know we are everything we are
5: what we want to be
3: thank you for that taylor and you actually helped me transition to Margot bellamy who is the on the school board and so margo
12: I can't follow that. I, I can't even touch that. I am speechless. Taylor, you are amazing. You're even more amazing than you were in high school. It's so good to see you. Thank you you. inspire me. Good to see you. So I will try to follow Taylor, um, and and I, you know, I just wanted to share a, a perspective of from one of uh, our our own, uh, Nichelle Smith. She writes for USA Today. And uh, she writes about how uh, the 2021 Black History Month feels a little bit different than the 2020 and the 2019. And so I'd like to just share a few thoughts uh, with you about that. She writes, Black Americans stand at the crossroads of racism and the systems of oppression that perpetuate it. We go forward from here with faith. And bold strategy, and that doesn't that doesn't uh, that 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 really captures what Taylor just said, what sh- uh, Taylor just shared with us. You know that boldness of knowing who you are, and uh, not letting anybody dictate to you of what you can be. Uh, but she does write; it does feel a little bit different. You know, we began the year, um, at say twenty twenty. We began that year with a pandemic, and we are still in the grips of that pandemic, and that pandemic exposed a lot of inequities. It also brought great triumphs. We got our first African-American vice president. I mean, just think about that. Taylor, you can do it too, girl. I'm, I'm just, I am just can't wait to see what what, what you are going to bring right on. You, you're going to go to law school, and you're going to bring it all back home. I know you are. But, you know, Black people were among essential workers who were risking their lives. They were serving others. Uh, We were the hardest hit. But still, we thrive. Still, we move on. And still, we embrace our history and our culture. That is what I want for every single kid. I was reading earlier today uh, about a district where uh, parents were excluding their kids from the study of black history. All right, what a horrible thing to do to deny your child the true essence of American history. And so while there is work to do, there are great opportunities. And I am so, so happy that we are together here tonight in this space so that we can continue to lift each other up, continue to celebrate and boldly move forward with faith. No matter how how hard it's been over the years, over the last year, we are pushing forward and working together. And the only way through it is together, everyone, all of us. So thank you, Celeste.
3: Thank you so much, Margot. Cal Williams is on. I, I wonder if he might want to share a little bit of what's happening at the Anchorage Museum. Okay, Cal?
4: Well, well, thanks. As as you uh, indicated, we are collecting as much as we can of African American uh, history, photographs, obituaries, uh, anything you may have of African Americans that were here in Anchorage, Alaska. We have an opportunity to deposit it in the downtown museum. First time ever. There's space for us. There's funding and resources to curate, et cetera, obituary forms, anything you may have that prove that African Americans were here, still are, and are achieving. Thanks, Celeste, for allowing that
11: opportunity.
3: Absolutely. So as I shared, that wraps up tonight's Black History Month celebration. Again, thank you for joining us this evening as we celebrate Black History Month. Throughout February, there are a host of events occurring. Lastly, We host community conversations every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. So until next time, good night, everybody.
0: We just heard the Alaska Black Caucus's virtual Black History Month celebration that was recorded on February 7th. Up next, let's hear another profile. She is regarded as the
1: first female self-made millionaire in America, Madam C.J. Walker. This is Heroes in Black History. Born Sarah Breedlove on December 23, 1867, in Delta, Louisiana, she, like many women of the era, experienced hair loss due to harsh chemicals used in soap products or bad hygiene and diet. At the age of 20, Sarah began to learn about hair care from her brothers while working in their St. Louis barbershop. Seven years later, she became a commission agent selling products for Annie Turnbow Malone, an African American hair care entrepreneur. During this time, Sarah adapted her knowledge of hair care and hair care products. Soon after, Sarah moved to Denver to develop her own hair care business and married Charles Joseph Walker, a newspaper advertising salesman. From this union, Sarah began to be known to the public as Madam C.J. Walker, an independent hairdresser and retailer of cosmetic creams. To grow her business, Madam C.J. Walker trained women as beauty culturists and to learn the art of selling. Using the organizational model of the National Association of Colored Women, Madam Walker began to organize her sales agents into local and state clubs. In 1910, Walker moved her headquarters to Indianapolis, where she built a factory, hair salon, beauty school, and a laboratory to help with research. She also started her own mail order business to keep up with the booming business, placing her daughter Elilia from her first marriage in charge of it. In 1917, she convened her first annual conference of the Walker Hair Culturist Union of America Convention, the first national meeting of American women to discuss business and commerce. Her business market now expanded outside the United States to Cuba, Jamaica, Haiti, Panama, and Costa Rica. Madam Walker was an advocate of civil rights and financial supporter of historically black colleges. Madam C.J. Walker, the first female self-made millionaire in
0: America, a true hero of black history. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media, KSKA Anchorage, FM 91.1. We're going to finish off the hour learning about black history in Hollywood.
13: The Oscars in recent years have received a lot of criticism for being too white, but this year's nominees included an unprecedented number of black actors, directors, and more. Among them are three nominations for the movie Hidden Figures which tells the story of the black women mathematicians who helped win the space race.
3: Catherine! We all gonna end up unemployed riding around in this pile of junk. You're welcome to walk the 16 miles. Oh, sit in the back of the bus. <laughs> <laughs> you, kiss me up.
7: you have identification on?
3: We're just on our way to work at NASA, sir. So.
7: I had no idea they hired.
14: There are quite a few women working in the space program. Hmm.
13: I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we speak with Margot Lee Shetterly, whose book inspired the movie. Later in the show, black actress Ruth Nega picked up an Oscar nomination for her role in Loving, a movie about the interracial couple who fought a landmark civil rights case and won.
15: The lawyer that they first worked with said, Their name was Loving. This was a case that would have to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and it would be styled Loving versus Virginia.
13: But first, in 2015, President Obama awarded Katherine Johnson a Presidential Medal of Freedom.
1: Katherine calculated the flight path for America's first mission in space and the path that put Neil Armstrong on the moon. She was even asked to double-check the computer's math on John Glenn's orbit around the Earth.
13: For many years, the stories of Katherine Johnson and the other black women working for NASA were largely unknown. Now, thanks to Margot Lee Shutterly, a graduate of the University of Virginia and author of the book Hidden Figures, they've become well-known American heroes. Margot, tell me the story of Hidden Figures. When did you first learn about these women?
14: I knew these women growing up. My father is, he's now retired, but he spent his entire career as a research scientist at the Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia. And he worked with many of these women, with Mary Jackson. Um, He knew Christine Darden. He knew Katherine Johnson. They were part of my community. I knew them, but I didn't know the story. Until six years ago, we were home visiting my, uh, my father, my husband and I. And my father was talking a little bit about some of the women who he had worked with, talking about the things that they did, calculating the launch windows for the astronauts and, you know, all of this uh, mathematical work. And my husband said, wait a minute, you're talking about all of these amazing things that happened in Hampton, Virginia. How come nobody knows about it? And, and that was six years ago. That was the beginning of what would become Hidden Figures.
13: What does that mean, calculating launch windows? And this is a long time ago. They were using math.
14: They, they were using math. Essentially, what it means is, you know, we're going to put a man in a can on top of a rocket and shoot him into space. Somebody's got to decide how to shoot him to space. Where do we put the rocket? How fast does the rocket go? Where is this guy going to land when he finally comes down? All of these questions, you know, all of these variables that need to be input so that this human being flying on top of a a, a rocket can come back safely to the Earth. So that was the charge um, of Katherine Johnson
13: and the engineers that she worked with. It's so interesting you call these women computers. And back then, they literally were computers. It was before there were computers. They were computing.
14: They were computing. For most of human history, uh, a computer was someone who computed. A dancer, someone who dances. A singer, someone who sings. A computer huh. is someone who computes, who spends their entire day professionally working on calculations. And that's what these women
13: did. The movie, the wonderful movie, Hidden Figures, based on your book focuses on three women in particular. Were they the only three?
14: Uh, they weren't. And, you know, I have to say one of the things that is uh, that was both surprising and very gratifying to me about this story is how many women there were doing this work. Um, my estimates are that from 1943 to 1980, there were possibly as many as 80 black women doing this work. And that they were part of a cohort of women of all backgrounds that was several hundred perhaps reaching as high as a thousand women over the decades. A thousand women working as professional mathematicians at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics and NASA.
13: Tell me the story of maybe the most gifted woman in math and computation from a young age.
14: Uh, Of Katherine Johnson. So Katherine Johnson was somebody whose mathematical talent was apparent from the time she was born, really. I mean, she talks about earliest memories of counting stars and counting stairs and counting dishes. Um, Her father uh, was also very, very mathematically talented. Um, She clearly got that talent from him. And so... She went to college at age 14. She graduated from college at 18. And she, like most black women, like most women from all backgrounds who were interested in math and who had studied math in college, she became a math teacher until 1952 when a relative of hers told her about the jobs available for black women as
13: mathematicians at NASA. And why were they looking for African-American women mathematicians in 1952? We're going to skip backwards to
14: 1943 because that's really where the story starts. So many things about our country started in World War II, modern America as we think of it. Um, And this is no exception. So during the war, there was a shortage of labor. The men were going off to the front, and that included male mathematicians and male engineers just at a time when the need for aeronautical research was skyrocketing because the airplane was going to tip the balance in this war in Europe and in the Pacific. So the civil service was out recruiting white female mathematicians uh, to come and work there at the laboratory. And after a gentleman named A. Philip Randolph, he was a labor leader who pressured President Roosevelt to open the civil service and the fence industry to um, African-Americans and other minorities, Jews, Poles, Mexicans, many people had been left out of these war jobs, shut out of these war jobs. After that happened, just about two years later, the very first five black women walked through the doors at the Langley Laboratory. This was an all-hands-on-deck situation um, for labor. And we always think of women working in factories, you know, the image of Rosie the Riveter. Well, women went to work in these mathematical fields as well. This was a huge surge uh, in technology. And these black women were among those aeronautical ground troops, we might call them, um, who really uh, made it possible for American aircraft to advance during World War II.
13: So when Katherine Johnson left her teaching position, Was she going because it was lucrative to work for NASA or because it was mathematically challenging? Sarah, it
14: was really both of those things. Um, So
13: back in those days,
14: a woman who left her job teaching to take a job as a professional mathematician for the government might get paid two or three times more than she was working as a teacher. Um, And we can only imagine, I mean, we we don't even have to imagine. You can do the math in your own lives and understand what kind of difference that makes to your life, your family's life, your children's future, to have, uh, you know, that kind of change in economic prospects. But it's also true that these women loved math the idea of being a professional mathematician and to do it in a setting that was so exciting, Um, you know, working on aircraft and later working on the space program. This was just, uh, you know, when I talk to these women about that, they talk about loving their jobs and going out to work every single day and just being so completely consumed by the kind of work that they were doing. So, um, you know, this this was a real opening for these women and a real chance for us to take full advantage of their talent.
13: In your book, you write about a moment where Katherine Johnson, this African-American whiz kid in math and calculating, goes to the team of white engineers and says, you tell me where you want him and I'll calculate the arc and work backwards from there. That's
14: right. Katherine Johnson, African-American woman in Virginia, which was still very much in the throes of segregation, um, she went to her bosses and essentially said, you've got a problem to solve, and I am the right person to solve that problem. And she said, listen, I'm doing the math anyway. I am here in these meetings. Let me do this work. And this is in a time when women of all backgrounds uh, stayed in the background, you know, women tended to be mathematicians, whereas the the men did the engineering. Women, even if they did the research, did not necessarily get their names on the research report. So for Katherine Johnson to to be very forward and very assertive and to be so interested in her work and in the outcome of this this venture that was being undertaken by by her country— for her to say that I'm the right person to do that delicate calculation, well, that takes a whole lot of guts.
13: <laughs> and they had her do it.
14: And they did, because what they realized was she was the right person for the job. You know, she was a spectacularly talented mathematician.
13: There was a moment you write about where Katherine Johnson is asked by John Clenn to double check the accuracy of the computer that he's basing his life on. The computer that has calculated the trajectory for his historic flight. That's right. You know, today we rely
14: on computers and we don't give it a second thought. Um, we have to remember that back in the the late '50s, early 1960s, the time that we're talking about here, computers were still new and um, they were still working out the the kinks of these machines. Sometimes they shut down. Um, sometimes, you know, there were there were bugs or you know problems with the output. You know, and then these astronauts who were very used to being the pilots of these mechanical planes, they flew the planes themselves. In the instance of of Project Mercury, they're going to be completely reliant upon and tethered to the people making decisions on the ground. you know, they, they have to trust that those people have done their math the right way. And they want to know also, in the case of the computers that were required for John Glenn's orbital flight, they want to know that those machines are right. So um, in this particular instance, um, February 1962, as they are getting ready um, for John Glenn's flight, as you can imagine, there were any number of checklists and double checks. I mean, this is a an unprecedented mission. What we're talking about is shooting the man into space, having him orbit around the Earth and come back down into the ocean, close enough to the waiting Navy ships that this person can be scooped out of the ocean safely. So... That required the brain of an electronic computer. But um, astronaut John Glenn, you know, a, a, as a part of the the many checklists and the countdowns before going into space, asked for one more thing. He said, get the girl to do it. I want to see what the computer gets, and I want to see what Katherine Johnson gets. And we're going to compare those two different sets of output. If those numbers are the same, then I think we are ready to go. How to go. Uh, Well, John Glenn became a hero, and Katherine Johnson, well, it took a little bit longer for us to appreciate her role in that day, but fortunately, we are here to celebrate her, Um, and not just her, but the work of all of these other women who made it possible for for the American space program to advance.
13: And yet the African-American women who were working at NASA at that time were working in the Jim Crow era in Virginia. So they were up against restraints that nobody else at NASA was experiencing.
14: Absolutely, just imagine. um, Here we have a group of professional mathematicians. They are educated, uh, they have gone to college, um, they have scored very well on the civil service exam. They are doing jobs that are sort of engineering dream jobs for smart people of every background. And yet every time they have to go to the bathroom, they are required to go to a segregated bathroom. They are required to sit at a separate table in the lunchroom. And in the beginning, the black women were required to work in their own office, even though they were doing the same work. The law of the state of Virginia required this kind of segregation. I mean, you know, they were fighting both for the goals of our country and also for the right to be recognized and to be treated fairly by our country, that our country would really live up to its founding ideals of liberty and justice for all of our citizens.
13: Margot Lee Shetterly is a graduate of the Commerce School at the University of Virginia, and the author of the book *Hidden Figures*, which inspired the film. Coming up next, the story of the loving couple behind an historic civil rights case. It's a case with a name that says it all: Loving versus Virginia. Peter and Mildred Loving were an ordinary couple who became icons of the civil rights movement when they violated Virginia's state law against interracial marriage. The case with the catchy name was so appealing, it was even made into an Oscar-nominated film released late last year. Peter Wallenstein is an historian at Virginia Tech who has spent years writing about the Loving family. His most recent book on the subject is Race, Sex, and the Freedom to Marry, Loving v. Virginia. Peter, who were Richard and Mildred Loving? How young were they when they first met?
15: They were both in their teens. Maybe she not even in her teens. Richard, everybody always understood that he's a white boy. Mildred, she variously described herself as part Indian and part Negro. But regardless, under Virginia law, she's not white. He is. And that's a problem if they're going to get romantically attached.
13: What period was this?
15: Okay, this is the 1940s and 50s.
13: Would there have been in that rural Virginia culture a prohibition psychologically and socially against this young white boy and this young African-American woman getting together?
15: You know, it's so hard to know. Mildred herself at one point in the 60s said, looking back, that she knew that the two groups went to different schools, They tended to go to different churches, but I didn't understand how bad it was, she said, until after we got married and we got arrested.
13: And tell me the story of how they fell in love and why they decided to get married.
15: Mildred and Richard had been going together for some time, and one night she told him, Richard, I'm pregnant. That's my reading as to how it was they decided now was the time to get married. That was what couples did in the 1950s, right? But Richard has a notion that they can't do that there. If they go off to D.C., there they can marry. And so they do. What he doesn't understand is that the same law that makes it a serious crime for them to marry in Virginia makes it just as serious a crime for them to try to bring back to Virginia the marriage they contracted in D.C.
13: So they got married in D.C., no biggie, and came back to live with their families? Yep.
15: And that's where, after about four weeks of pretty happy married time, they suddenly get busted into in the middle of the night. Terror. Who was it? Well, it was the sheriff, the deputy sheriff, and the jailer, the entire police force of the entire county of Caroline.
13: What'd they say to him?
15: Uh, What you doing in bed with this woman? And he points toward the marriage license on the wall, and she says, I'm his wife. And the sheriff says, not in this county, you're not. You people out there at Central Point, you don't even know who you are. You're so mixed up. But we have categories, and you have violated them.
13: And what happened to them after that?
15: Well, they're hauled off to jail. They're put in different cells, and she is kept there for several days. He's let out on one day, and he's told on no uncertain terms, if you try to get her out, you're going back in. So about six months later, the trial comes, and it's a plea bargain. You don't have to go to the penitentiary for five years. Or the minimum one, if you leave the state for 25 years, you can go and be married someplace else, but you can't be married here.
13: So they went to Washington. So
15: they went back to D.C. And there they lived for several more years. In fact, it's four more years before Mildred has just had enough. She needs help. Where can she get it? Well, it's summer 1963. There's talk about a civil rights bill. There's a march on Washington coming up soon. And she'd been complaining. Finally, Laura, her cousin's wife, says, Well, why don't you write Bobby Kennedy? And so she does. She writes him, Dear Mr. Kennedy. And she says, We have no money. We need a lawyer. Can you help us? Kennedy knew that the Department of Justice had no recourse. But there was this group, the American Civil Liberties Union, and just maybe they could help and they did. The lawyer that they first worked with said, I saw this case, two people who loved each other. Their name was Loving. This was a case that would have to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it would be styled Loving versus Virginia.
13: <laughs> it really is remarkable, isn't it?
15: It's, it's amazing.
13: The laws banning interracial marriage were not unique to Virginia at that time, right?
15: Absolutely not. At the time of the arrest in 1958, 24 states had such laws, 24 did not. By the time the case goes to the Supreme Court, we're down to 17 states.
13: All in the South?
15: Well, that's my definition of the South. In fact, from Delaware to Oklahoma, from Texas to Florida.
13: Were there several other couples that had to try and fail before Loving came along?
15: Oh, there were a lot of other couples. There'd been Contests over these kinds of laws that dated back to the time of the American Revolution.
13: And was it usually a white man and a black woman?
15: Actually, that was one of the things that made the Lovings unusual. He's white. She's not. Um, The cases in the early post-Civil War years in Virginia, the two best-known cases, both were a black man and a white woman.
13: How long did it take for them to finally win the Supreme Court case?
15: It's mid-1963. A year passes. Mrs. Loving writes, Mr. Cohen, Dear Mr. Cohen, hope you hadn't forgotten us. Now he's in a box. He wants to help them. He's come up empty. Who does he meet but a younger lawyer, Philip Hershkov, who has just come back from the front lines of the Deep South. He's caught up in the civil rights struggle. He's bringing constantly cases before the federal courts. And so they team up. This is Summer 64. So Judge Leon Bazile, who back in 1959 issued this uh, ruling that they must leave the state if they want to stay free and married. The case has come back to him now. He's not amused. And he writes this long ruling, and God Almighty created the races. God put them on separate continents, and he meant for them to stay apart. So the Virginia Supreme Court rules in '66. The case goes to the Supreme Court. Enough justices, all of them now, in fact, agree to hear it. And the argument takes place in the spring of 1967. And then a few months later, the ruling comes down. It's a 9-0 vote, no question about it. The, the punchline, these convictions must be overruled. The Lovings cannot be guilty of a crime that has no constitutional basis. People living in a state like New York were now free to move to a state like Virginia. The rules no longer trembled anybody. Black, white, North, South, anybody.
13: It's so interesting. It strikes me the Lovings themselves were really not super political in any way. They just wanted to be left alone.
15: Most people just want to be left alone. They didn't go out on a crusade. On the other hand, Mildred at different times would say things like, you know, if we lose... We can go back to D.C., but it's the principle of the thing. She actually said it in those terms. She was politically conscious enough to know that this case went far beyond two people who wanted to be able to go back to Caroline.
13: Where did this prohibition on interracial marriage come from? How early on were there such marriages?
15: Well, John Rolfe and Pocahontas, that's about as early as you can get. 1614, so seven years after Jamestown begins.
13: But in those subsequent years, when did we start to get prohibitions on interracial mingling this way?
15: In Maryland, you see it as early as the 1660s. In Virginia, it's the 1690s. So they specify that should a white woman and an Indian or black man marry, that's not a valid marriage. If a white man marries like John Rolfe did Pocahontas, an Indian or black woman That's not a valid marriage, and in fact, the white person in either case will be exiled.
13: Who were those white women they were worried about? Typically, were those the plantation wives?
15: Probably not the wives. What more often happened was that servants and slaves, unfree people regardless of their color, they worked together, they lived together, and they often hung out together. They made music, and they made love, and they might have kids.
13: Why were the men in charge wanting to disrupt that? Why not just let them
15: marry and have kids? Something between male domination, elite domination, planter domination, political and economic. We've got to secure our position. And one way to do that is clearly define who belongs white and who doesn't, Um White men were prepared to share, as a rule, black women with black men. What they were not prepared to do was share white women with black men. And so what they had to do was create obstacles, put penalties in place, make it less likely that white women would willingly become partners to black men.
13: So what sorts of penalties were there?
15: Well, the woman would have to pay a hefty fine. If she couldn't pay it, and servants certainly didn't have the cash, couldn't pay it, Then they would get sold as servants for extended periods. And regardless, the child would become a servant for, check this out, 31 years.
13: But what about the white men impregnating African American female slaves? Weren't they worried that these laws would ensnare them?
15: Well, but they weren't marrying. And so they could hardly go afoul of a law that said there's a crime against marrying
13: Interesting. Let me go back to Mildred and Richard Loving. I, for years, have been captivated by the title you chose for the book,
15: Tell the Court I Love My Wife, is what Mr. Cohen says Mr. Loving told him when he said, no, I don't want to go to the court hearing. But when you get to the Supreme Court, just tell the court, I love my wife. So you have these two extraordinary brief statements that come up in the oral argument before the Supreme Court. One is this, and God Almighty created the races. And tell the court, I love my wife.
13: Peter Wallenstein, thank you so much for sharing your understanding of this history with me and with Kadresen.
15: Thank you. Delighted to be here.
2: Come and
13: Peter Wallenstein is a professor of history at Virginia Tech and the author of Race, Sex, and the Freedom to Marry, Loving v. Virginia. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation and by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world UVAhealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Elliot Majerzik, Allison Quantz, Lilia Fukin, and John Last are our associate producers. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to withgoodreasonradio.org. Don't forget to rate or comment to let us know what you think. To reach us, Call 877 451 5098. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Let's
2: go there where we can be lover.
0: Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. For links and other episodes, head to the Addressing Alaskans page on AlaskaPublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page.